You're listening to audio from Grace Family Church. If you'd like to explore more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at gracepsl.org. Amen. Alrighty, well, um, it's good to be back. Let's uh, open up our Bibles this morning to Daniel. We're continuing our study in the, in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 8. Um, let me give you a little background before we begin this morning. This is our 12th week in this series. The series isn't called, you know, the book of Daniel. It's called She Who Is in Babylon. And the reason is that was a phrase that we came to at the end of our study of 1 Peter chapter 5 is where it's found. A phrase that Peter used to describe the church in Rome in his day. He was writing from Rome. And he says, she, the church who is in Babylon, sends her greetings to the church he was writing to. And by doing that, he was basically making a comparison. What he was saying was this, is that believers living in Rome in his day were very much like the Israelites living in exile in Babylon six centuries earlier. He was making a comparison. Basically, he was saying they were both exiles in that they were living away from their permanent home. The Jews were away from Jerusalem. The Christians in Rome were away from heaven. They were both living under the authority of an oppressive ruling power. They were both awaiting that day when they would finally be able to go home and live under their benevolent king, the Lord Jesus, and they were both on a mission. And so likewise, believers in our age, we are exiles too, and that we are away from our ultimate home. This life is but a vapor, James says. We, some more than others, also live under oppressive human power. We too are waiting for the day that we can go home and again live under not an oppressive power, but our benevolent King, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. And until that day, though, we too, we're still on a mission right here in Babylon. So in the light of all of that, how are we to live? How are we to do that? And that's how we ended up in the book of Daniel, because Daniel was one of the first exiles from Israel to be deported to Babylon. And his life story in the first six chapters of the book of Daniel um, really helps us and gives us wisdom on how to live as faithful exiles in our Babylon today. But as you go from the sixth to the seventh chapter in the book of Daniel, it changes dramatically. You go from the story of Daniel's life, we call it historical narrative, to the record of Daniel's prophecies, apocalyptic prophecy. Daniel has all these visions, and they're recorded in chapters 7 through 12. And so my initial intent, uh, intent when we were doing the series, She Was in Babylon, I was going to quit at the end of chapter 6. I wasn't going to move on into the, the prophecy part of it, Daniel's visions part. And then I changed my mind because I saw that although the genre changed, historical narrative to apocalyptic prophecy, Although the genre changed, the theme did not. The theme is still the same. How to live on mission in Babylon. And Daniel's prophecies help us do that as much as the story of Daniel's life. You say, how? Well, to live on mission in Babylon, you've got to know one thing for sure, that God is sovereign over the future. 
History is not governed by human decisions or natural causes alone. Above all of it is a sovereign God working out His plan for humanity, even when, and especially when, it doesn't seem as if He's doing that. And God's plan has an end goal, and that end goal is our hope, and that hope is the anchor for our soul as we live on mission in Babylon. And that's why knowing something about the future is so important. That's why studying prophecy is so important. The Jewish exiles in Babylon forgot that God was sovereign over history. And because of that, they lost their hope. Psalm 137, we find them being quoted from Babylon saying, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while we're in a foreign land? So if we're going to sing the songs of God while living in our Babylon, we must know that God is in ultimate control over the times and seasons of the human race, over the kings and nations. As Daniel prayed earlier in chapter 2, he said he changes the times and seasons, he removes kings, he sets up kings. And if God is sovereign over humanity, over kings and nations, then he also must be sovereign in our lives. I mean, with all the circumstances and within all the circumstances of our life and in all of our inconsistencies and in spite of all of our failures and sins, God is flawlessly working to conform us to the image of His Son. And one day in the future, when Christ appears, 1 John 3, we shall be like Him. That's our hope. And that's what stabilizes us. We, doesn't say we might be like him. Some of us will be like him. We will be like him for we shall see him as he is. I imagine that that moment of the revelation of Jesus Christ to all the church will have a, such a transforming effect that at that moment, from then on, we'll be perfect. We'll be like him. That's what it says. And it says right after that, all who have this hope, have what? This hope purify themselves as he is as pure. So that's why we went on into chapter 7 and why we're in chapter 8. All right, with that introduction, let me just tell you, as we move into chapter 8 this morning, we're biting off a huge elephant. And we're not going to do it one bite at a time. One thing you'll notice, though, if you remember two weeks ago from chapter 7, chapter 8 is similar to chapter 7 in this. First of all, like chapter 7, it's a vision. The whole thing contains a vision given to Daniel by God. Like chapter 7, there's a heavenly being in this vision that interprets the vision for Daniel. And like chapter 7, this vision again involves animals that represent kingdoms or nations that are in some way a part of God's plan. But in chapter 8, there are only two kingdoms instead of four. Now, if you've been here for the whole study of Daniel, you'll know from Daniel 2 on that Daniel's visions have had to do with basically four nations, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, four kingdoms that span a period of history from 626 B.C. to 476 A.D. And in Daniel chapter 7, these kingdoms are likened to four animals. You see them right there. Babylon's like a lion, the Medo-Persian Empire like a bear. Greece was likened unto a leopard, and Rome was unlike any other animal. Nobody knew what it was like. It was so weird. 
Now, in Daniel chapter 8, there's nothing about Babylon in the vision in Daniel 8. There's nothing about Rome. The focus is on the two empires in the middle, the Medo-Persian Empire, which is likened unto a ram, and the Greek Empire, which is likened unto a goat, ram and goat. Now, what's the reason for this? Why? Well, the vision in chapter 7, excuse me, 8, um, doesn't involve all the nations because chapter 7 was about what's going to happen to all people at the end, all humanity. Chapter 8 is about what's going to happen to the Jewish people at a certain period in Daniel's future, our past, but Daniel's future. It's about 350 years after Daniel. Like chapter 7, also the first half of Daniel 8 um, is the vision, and then the second half is the interpretation of the vision. And there are again three animals in this vision, each of which is further explained in the interpretation. So there's three. I've got a picture for you here, I think. There you go. We're going to visualize it this morning, all right? You don't have to imagine. First of all, there is a ram, and the vision is found in verses 1 through 4, and then in verses 15 through 20, you have the interpretation. So we'll look at the ram first, and then in the middle, you got this goat, right? A goat with a single horn between his eyes. We're going to look at the vision and then the interpretation of the goat, and then you have the goat with four horns out of which a little horn grows and becomes large. We're going to look at that. We'll call that the little horn. So we got the ram, the goat, and the little horn. Is that clear? You need that going into that, believe me. You'll see why. All right, let's jump into verse 1. Ready? Here we go. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, now he was the last king of Babylon, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. That was the one in chapter 7. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal, or river. Now, the likely reason for this location is not very long, right after this vision, that the Persians came in and conquered the Babylonians. And that's the whole story of Daniel chapter 5. And after they gained control of Babylon, they established their capital 150 miles to the east in the Persian city of Susa. Verse 3, I looked up, and there was before me a ram with two horns, standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it, and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. And here's the interpretation now in verse 15. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision... And trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Uli, the canal, calling out, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. Now, the voice that spoke from over the canal or river was God. The one who looked like a man is identified here as Gabriel, one of the two named angels in the Bible, the other one being Michael, who, by the way, we'll see later on in Daniel chapter 10 and 12. This is, first, this is Gabriel's first mention in the Bible. His next appearance is in Luke, 
where he reassures Zechariah that yes, his, his wife in her old age is going to bear a son whom we know as John the Baptist. The last person that Gabriel speaks with is Mary, the mother of Jesus, to whom he famously announces that though she is a virgin, she will bear a son who will be called Jesus, Son of the Most High. Now, apparently, Gabriel's appearance was quite stunning. His presence was quite overwhelming. We see the way it affects Daniel here as he, Gabriel, came near the place where I was standing. I was terrified. So, oh, look, cool, an angel. Not that at all. He says he was terrified and fell prostrate, face down on the ground. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Now, I don't know why that happened. Maybe it was because of the intensity of all, but then he touched me and raised me to my feet. The angel kind of had to give him some help to listen to this. This was heavy. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. All right, so that's the first thing. And the uneven horns, by the way, are symbolic of the fact that it was an uneven kingdom. The Persian side was much more dominant than the, the Mede side. In fact, eventually the Persians took over and it became one, and that's why both horns eventually are the same length. Additionally, the symbol for the Persian Empire in the ancient world was a ram. Just like the symbol for Babylon was a lion, the symbol for Rome was an eagle. All these great nations had their symbols. Now, Daniel saw this ram charging its way toward the west and the north and the south. It says, no animal could stop it. It did as it pleased. It became great. You know, that's exactly how the Persians conquered the, uh, the, the, the Babylonians. The Persians, of course, are modern-day Iran. Babylonians, modern-day Iraq. And you can see it here. The, the kingdom started out in the middle of that red and then just kept expanding out. After it conquered uh, Babylon, it conquered the areas today that are known as the nations of Syria and Jordan and Israel and Egypt to the west, Turkey, Armenia, Turkmenistan to the north, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, and Ethiopia to the south, and a little bit beyond that. It was the largest empire up to that day in all of human history. And it was also the empire, and this is very important later on, that allowed the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And this is very important in the prophetic timetable of the Bible. Now, the angel tells Daniel that the activity of the ram and what follows, the goat with a single horn and then the goat with four horns, is, uh, will culminate in a time, he says, known, known here as the time of the end or the time of the wrath. And as we'll discover... This is very important. This is not the final end for all humanity. This, this ending that he talks about here is a short but very difficult time for the Jewish people that is kind of a foreshadowing of the very difficult time at the end for every human being at the end, okay? Now, let's go to the vision of the goat next. As I was thinking about the ram... Suddenly a goat with prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without even touching the ground. It came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal, and it charged at it in a great rage. 
I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it. None could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off. And in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Now, the interpretation is next. Now, you've got to remember, this is 200. This happens exactly as the vision lays it out 215 years later. 21, verse 21. The shaggy goat, this is what the, uh, Gabriel says, the shaggy goat is the king of Greece. And the large horn between its eyes is the first king. And the four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. So, what we have here is the goat with a single horn is Greece. That horn represents its first and most illustrious king. You know who it is, Alexander the Great, who came from the West and conquered the Persian Empire so quickly, so quickly, it was as if, the prophecy says, he never touched the ground. The goat never touched the ground, right? Alexander became a general at the age of 21 and virtually conquered the world by 26, five years. He died at age 33. Ironically, he died in Nebuchadnezzar's palace in the ancient city of Babylon. But it only took him three years to do away with the Persians. One of his early battles kind of set the tone for the whole thing. 30,000 Greek soldiers defeated 100,000 Persian soldiers with 10,000 chariots. They killed 20,000 of the Persians and only lost 100 Greek soldiers. He was brilliant. He was a brilliant, brilliant military commander, and he was brilliant in many, many areas. He was an amazing person. God used that brilliance not only to build an empire, but most notably to establish a common educational system and a common language throughout the Greek empire that was so good when the Romans took over from the Greeks, they adopted it. They adopted the language. And they, in turn, developed an international road system so that by the time Jesus is giving the Great Commission, saying, go into all the world and preach the gospel, there was a road system to do it, and everyone spoke the same language. That's God. He's sovereign over history. However, as quickly as uh, Alexander amassed this territory and greatness, he lost it. That's what the vision says. Suddenly, unexpectedly, the large horn was what? Broke off. Alexander died. And since he had no heirs, his kingdom was separated among what? Four generals who are the four horns. The one large horn broke off, the four horns are now ruling. So the kingdom's divided among four generals. So you kind of see a little picture here of what's going on with these goats. You got the single goat, right? That's, that's, uh, that's Alexander. Alexander dies, his four generals, that's the goat in the middle. Now out of one of those horns, one horn becomes prominent, and that's the focus of the rest of this prophecy. We call it the little horn it becomes great, but it starts little. It grows great and powerful. Now, this is not the little horn of Daniel 7. 
That little horn came out of the Roman Empire. This little horn comes out of the Greek Empire. And although this little horn is not as strong and powerful as Alexander, he nonetheless takes center stage here in the vision because of what he does to God or tries to do to God and what he tries to do to God's people. So let's look at that vision of the little horn. Verse 9. Out of one of them, out of the four horns of the Greek generals, came another horn, which started small, that's why we call him the little horn, but grew in power to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land. That's Israel. It grew until it reached the host of heavens and threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. Now, we'll come back to this. I just got to give you a little sentence here, what's going on, because that's hard to understand. It took me three days, a lot of study. Verse 9 through 11, though, here's the synopsis of it. Reveal parallel evil kingdoms, parallel evil kingdoms. One that's in the realm of the visible, and the other that's in the realm of the invisible, but just as real. So there is a visible evil king that is setting himself against the people of the beautiful land, and there is also an evil king or power behind him that is setting himself against the commander of the Lord's army. And of course, that's the Lord himself. And the invisible king's rebellion resulted in some of the heavenly or starry host falling down to the earth. Why? There's an angelic battle going on behind the battle that's going on in earth. In other words, there's something in the spiritual realm that's happening parallel to what we see with our eyes. Behind human conflict, there is a cosmic warp. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 6. So he says our battle's not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world and wicked spirits in heavenly places. There's another realm. Now we'll look at this in Daniel 10. Back to verse 11. Let's get back to the, the kingdom that's here, that's visible, the little horn in the visible realm. Daniel said, or the, the, the vision said, that this little horn took away, verse 11, the daily sacrifice from the Lord and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of the rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. And then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, how long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. Now let's look at the interpretation of that. In the latter part of their reign, this again is Gabriel, in the latter part of their reign, the reign one of the four kings that come out of Greece, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce looking king, a master of intrigue will arise. He will become strong, but not by his own power. Notice that. Not, not like Alexander. He's going to be empowered by something other than human power. He will cause astounding devastation 
and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed. Notice this. But not by human power. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given to you is true, but seal up the vision for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was worn out. I'm almost worn out reading it. (laughs) Trying to understand it. I lay exhausted for several days, and then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Now, the universal consensus among biblical historians and theologians is that this little horn is none other than a Greek king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, or Epiphanes. He ruled one-fourth of the Greek kingdom, the Syrian-Israeli part of that former Greek empire, about 150 years after Alexander. And he was most famous for his efforts in the last few years of his 11-year reign to completely wipe the Jews out to destroy them, to destroy their faith. He was like the Adolf Hitler of the day. After conquering Jerusalem, he replaced the godly high priest with a counterfeit high priest who put an end to the daily sacrifices in the temple. Not only did he do that, but he outlawed the circumcision of male infants, which Jewish law required. Not only that, but he made the Jewish people eat unclean meat, which was against God's law. And on top of that, he made it a crime to possess the Scripture. A year or so or two years later, after failing to overtake Egypt in a military campaign, he was so ticked off, he came back and he vented his rage by sending 20,000 troops into Jerusalem to kill tens of thousands of people. And because he thought of himself as the Greek god Zeus, he erected a statue of Zeus in the middle of the temple, right in the temple. And he demanded that all Israel worship him. And he called himself and he minted the coins of his kingdom, Theos, Antiochus, Epiphanes, which means God made manifest. What was he saying? I'm the God-man. There's only one God, man. And then he did, if that's not bad enough, there's more? Yeah, there's more. He did the unthinkable. He sacrificed a pig on the altar of God. Now, if you're a Jewish person, you weren't going in that temple anymore, right? That made the temple unclean and therefore unusable and therefore desolate And this is what the Jews called the abomination of desolation. That's where it comes from. The light is flicking on. I can see it all over the place. (laughs) Now, you might recognize that phrase, right? Because it's used later on in Daniel. It's also used by the Lord Jesus in Matthew 24 to refer to the actions of someone that's like but much greater than, than Antiochus known as what? The Antichrist. 
In the future, he's going to do basically the same thing. He'll set himself up as God in the temple of Jerusalem just before the second coming of Jesus. So in this passage, what you have to see, like other prophetic passages, is that there's kind of a dual fulfillment, a double fulfillment going on, one through Antiochus and the other one through the Antichrist. And just like Antiochus, the Antichrist will have the power of deception. He'll come to power through deception. He'll have great power that is not his own, like Antiochus, that comes through demonic origin. And like Antiochus, the Antichrist's greatest animosity will be towards God and his people. Daniel says it, he'll have it towards the prince of princes and his people. And like Antiochus, he'll deceive himself. His deception will be so great that he'll self-deceive to such a degree that he'll think he's superior to God and force people to worship him in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, that's, our, that's the future. That's the future. That's way down the road. Let's go back to Daniel here. <laughs> now, Daniel, as Daniel saw this horn, this little horn, grow and prosper, and he saw, he says, God's truth thrown to the ground. He heard one of the, the angelic beings, the holy beings, ask another one, how long would the rebellion of the little horn be allowed to go on? The little horn that came out of the goat, that came out of the goat with four horns, that came from the goat with one horn. How long will this rebellion be allowed to go on? And the angel answers the other angel, but as he does, he turns and looks at Daniel. And he says, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated, and of course, then the daily sacrifices would resume. Now, the Mosaic Law required two sacrifices to be made every day at the temple in Jerusalem. They made one in the morning, they made one in the evening, and these sacrifices were for the daily atonement of sin for the nation of Israel. You can read about it in Exodus 29. So 2,300 mornings and evenings, there would be no sacrifices made. That would be, if you took morning and evening, 2,300, that would equal 1,150 consecutive days or three years and 15 days, which is the interval between the desecration of the temple altar by Antiochus in 168 BC and the reconsecration of the temple in December of 165, a little over three years later, just like Daniel predicted. You know, one thing we're seeing over and over and over is how accurate these are, because to us, all that Daniel's talking about the future, most of it anyway, is past, and we see with just amazing accuracy. You can trust God's Word. And so the reconsecration of the temple came about just as the vision revealed, and it came about as, the revolt, as a result of a Jewish uprising, a, a revolt led by a guy named Judas Maccabeus, the Maccabean Revolt. And when they recaptured Jerusalem and, and reconsecrated the, the temple, they, a feast came out of that called the Feast of Dedication, which today is known as Hanukkah. The Jews still celebrate that very thing today. All right. There's one more similarity, though, between Antiochus and the Antichrist, and that is both are struck down by non-human power. 
Not by human action, but by divine action. Verse 25 says, he will be destroyed, but not by human power. And that's exactly what happened. He was struck down by God. And the same thing is going to happen to the Antichrist one day. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs. What we're looking at here in this vision is the precursor to that, the foreshadowing of that rebellion. There'll be a major rebellion one day, and the man of lawlessness, another name for the Antichrist, will be revealed. The man, what? Doomed to destruction, just like Antiochus. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that's called God or his worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. And then, later on in the same chapter, Paul writes, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The Antichrist will die not by human hand, but by the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? All right, so that's, that's chapter eight. What does this mean for me? Well, there's a lot of application here. I don't have time for a lot. We're gonna focus on one thing, three points, okay? This, this, these, these verses here tell us a lot about how Satan works. Both Antiochus and the Antichrist were empowered by Satan. And so we can learn a lot about how Satan works to oppose God and his people through the methodology that's used right here by Antiochus. And we need to understand that. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that we should not be ignorant of Satan's devices or strategies. We shouldn't be ignorant of his, of his methodology or his one translation says his schemes. Unfortunately, and sadly, many Christians today are ignorant of how he works. So they don't see him when he's coming. They don't see his work when it's happening. They don't understand the way that he works. This is why Peter says, 1 Peter 5.8, be alert. Be alert. That's a pastor's cry for every person in every church in this land. Please, church, this is the day to be alert. Be sober-minded. Be spiritually alert. Your enemy, say my enemy, not just the pastor's enemy, not just super-duper Christian, if there is one. Never met one, by the way, but super-duper Christian's enemy. Everyone's enemy, your enemy, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You know what that tells me? If I'm not alert, I'm going to be devoured. If I'm not sober, I'm going to be devoured. If I am ignorant of his schemes, I'm going to be devoured. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith. Well, to resist Satan, you've got to understand his schemes, which are revealed in three things that Antiochus does here to God's people in verse 11 and 12. In summary, he took away the daily sacrifice, remember? Number two, he threw down the Lord's sanctuary. And number three, he threw truth to the ground. We'll take them up one at a time. Number one, he took away the daily sacrifice. Now that daily animal sacrifice no longer exists for Christians under the new covenant. But it was part of the requirement in order to have fellowship with God in the Old Testament under the Mosaic covenant. They were to daily, it was offered daily, twice a day, morning and evening, daily have a reminder of the necessity 
of sacrifice in order to have fellowship with God. The necessity of sacrifice. Now, all of those Jewish offerings, all those sacrifices, they were only a type, the New Testament says, of a final, future, final, and ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins and rose again. That's the gospel. And so what Satan wants to do, here's here's one of his devices. He wants to get you away from the daily remembrance of the sacrifice. He wants to get you away from the daily remembrance of the cross and what the cross has accomplished for you. He wants to get you on to something else other than the gospel. And the more he can do that, the more he can deceive us and draw us away from the simplicity and the daily remember of that beautiful, redemptive sacrifice and what it means for us in the presence, the more our, 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 our conscience will be clouded over with guilt. We'll forget who, who he is and what he's done for us and who he's made us to be. Our consciousness get, get clouded. With guilt, our joy won't be strong enough to empower our obedience. Our hope won't be strong enough to empower us through adversity because our hope and our joy are directly dependent upon how living that gospel is in us in every moment. Not just historically as a fact or theologically on paper, but how alive that sacrifice is within us. The key to fellowship with God is daily centering your life on the gospel. Every day, we ought to be preaching the gospel to ourselves, remembering if you have to take communion every day. But remember the gospel every single day, and that's what we do when we take the, sit at the Lord's table. So we're reminding ourselves of that. We need to do that every single day. Remind ourselves of what that's... The first thing Antiochus did is he got rid of the daily remembrance of the sacrifice. The key to fellowship with God is daily centering your life on the gospel because it alone, through the power of the Holy Spirit, prompts us to to daily offer our lives as living sacrifices to God, to pick up our cross and to follow him, to love our neighbor as ourselves, only through the power of the gospel. Daily remember, daily remembering the sacrifice of Christ, daily remembering the gospel is the power behind prayer, serving, giving, delighting in God, persevering in trial, and truly enjoying the gift of life no matter what is going on in the world. See, you know, some people say this. They'll say, you know, the first thing Satan comes after, first thing he tries to get you to do is to stop praying or stop serving or stop giving. No, 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 no. The first thing he does is he tries to get you away from daily remembering that sacrifice for you. He tries to get you to stop believing daily the gospel in a way that moves your heart and leads you to worship. He doesn't care if you believe the facts of the gospel. He doesn't care at all about that. What he cares about, he doesn't, what he doesn't want is he doesn't want you to, to be moved by the truth of it because he knows this. He knows when that truth is deep in your soul and that it's governing your life, that it's the center of your life, he can't touch you. He has no power over you. The second thing that Antiochus did was he says here in the, the passage, he threw down the sanctuary. Satan seeks to throw down 
the new sanctuary of God, the gathering of God's people. Do you know this morning, we are the sanctuary of God? See, Antiochus tried to throw down and dismantle the physical sanctuary. There is no more anymore. The sanctuary is within us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3, we gathered are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so he tries to throw that down. Sometimes he'll do that through means of outward persecution. He keeps people from gathering together. That's happening to hundreds of thousands of people as I speak. At other times, he throws down the sanctuary through bringing disunity and, or apathy among God's people. He keeps God's people from, from showing love to one another and serving one another. And sometimes he accomplishes both at the same time. He keeps people from gathering, and he keeps people from showing love to one another. You say, how, is, how does he do that? Well, most recently, through online streaming. On any given Sunday, Grace Family Church has as many people watching the live stream as people actually present here in person. Now, that's good in some senses because if you're a shut-in, if you're physically unable, if you're ill, if you are away on vacation, if you're checking out Grace Family Church for the first time, if you're supplementing the sermon that you heard in person at your church, then online streaming is a wonderful thing. But if any of those categories don't fit your case, then streaming is the most horrible substitute for God's plan to gather together in person on the Lord's Day as the gathered sanctuary of God. See, I, I hate how churches do this too. They'll advertise, be a part of our online church. There's no such thing as an online church. It doesn't exist. It's an oxymoron. Be a part of our, join our virtual church service. Well, there's no such thing as a virtual church service. Again, it's a contradiction. The church, by its very nature, implies an incarnation. And it requires an actual gathering. 60% of all Christians disagree with me and God's word. <laughs> Who cares what I think? 60% of all Christians think contrary and that online church is a viable alternative. Look at me. It's about as viable as Zooming or FaceTiming your family Thanksgiving gathering. Let's try it this year, okay? Let's see how it works. See, your whole family, assign one of the dishes to each one of your family. You know, somebody gets the, chi the, the turkey, someone gets the stuffing, potatoes, cranberries, you know. In our, in our tradition, oyster casserole, my favorite. Right. So we'll assign that to everybody, and then we'll just all at the same time, you know, do a big FaceTime group, and we'll go, let's celebrate our Thanksgiving together. It doesn't work, does it? The writer of Hebrews said, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together as the habit of some has become, but encouraging one another. Encouraging what? See you at church. And all the more as you see the day approaching. You know, this all started, of course, with the COVID lockdowns. But I, I just, little news announcement, they're over. <laughs> all right, one time I was reading and a guy wrote this. said, it's like, it's like two lovers 
who are separated by war and forced to write letters to maintain their fellowship. Then he said this, do you think when peacetime arrives, they'll say to each other, let's just keep writing letters? I rest my case. The third thing Antiochus did, what's the third thing he did? Remember what he did? He threw down the truth. Just as Antiochus threw down the truth, Satan attempts to get believers to it, it, it not throw down right away. It, the first thing is to loosen their grip on truth. Then they kind of let go of it, and then eventually if they let go long enough, they discard it or throw it down. He's very, very skilled at this. He's very skilled at introducing wrong thinking into the minds of believers and doctrinal error into the church. And that's why most of the New Testament letters address doctrinal error and the wrong thinking that comes from it. Throughout the Bible, deceitful teaching is always a mark of the Antichrist or the spirit of Antichrist. Paul was so aware of this that he warned pastors. Um, I'm thinking specifically of the pastors at Ephesus. He gathered them together and said this, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. It's like Peter, be alert, be vigilant, be on your guard, remember. And then look at this, this is heartbreaking. For three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. There's a man who loved the church. In all my 38 years of pastoring, I have never seen more wrong thinking among God's people and more doctrinal error than I have seen in the church than I have seen in the last three or four or five years. I mean, it's absolutely frightening at times. It originally was depressing. I mean, I was just depressed all the time. I couldn't believe that. I mean, I'm not talking about I'm talking about, God love them. I'm talking about people that were slid for years. Teachers, preachers, theologians, giving way to the spirit of the age and in essence, throwing truth to the ground. But if truth was thrown to the ground in the churches where Paul, Peter, and John all served in ministry, we should not be surprised that it is very possible for and is happening in the church today. It's a somber thing. This is like every time I look at the news on how the church is doing on Christian Post or something like that, there's another one has bit the dust. It almost gets where like I just, I don't want to hear it anymore. It's never been that way. In my 40 plus years of being a Christian, 42, it's never been that way like it is right now. So it's of great comfort to remind ourselves of the promise of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 16, who said, when he said this, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That, that, of course, does not mean, that divine decree does not mean that Satan 
uh, will stop launching his assaults against the church. It just means at the end, at the end of it all, the gates of hell will not prevail. Antiochus' attack on the truth of God is not only characteristic of the last day, the last days, but also of the first days in the Garden of Eden. That's where he started it all. Satan's plan is always to get people to loosen their grip on the truth, as he did with Eve and Adam, and then lay down the truth, and then eventually, in many cases, throw down the truth and walk away. So here's a summary. You ready? The whole sermon in one sentence. Just like the little horn, Satan tries to get us to neglect the daily remembrance of the sacrifice, the gospel of Christ. He tries to get us to disregard or cast down the gathering of the new sanctuary of God's people. And he tries to get us to loosen our grip on the truth of God's Word. So how, how then should we respond? I'm going back to the Apostle Peter again. We started with this. Be alert. And could I just say, not reading, just say, please be alert spiritually alert. Please be spiritually sober. Please realize you have an enemy. Please don't think you're too inconsequential for that enemy to spend any of his resources on you. He will. He's looking for an open door. It only takes a little bit. You know, we always call the figure, the bad figure here, the little horn. But the little horn always does what? Grows great and powerful. Why? Because that's the way Satan comes in. Little. Small, deceptive, hiding himself. A little thing, a little compromise. It always starts that way. But once that seed gets in there, it starts growing. But for the grace of God to come in and wipe it out and extract it. So be alert. Be sober. Your enemy, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith. Standing firm in what? The faith. That means standing firm in the truth of God's Word. The faith, definite article. The body of truth. Stand firm in the body of truth that's been handed to you. Daniel gave us a little bit more advice, and I'll end with that in a prayer. At the end of that um, that vision, he said, I was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. And then here's the part I want you to see. Then he said, then I got up and I went about the king's business. Okay, so how do we we stay on mission in Babylon? Be alert, be sober. Don't be unwise concerning Satan's devices. And spend your life going about the king's business. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. I thank you that the entrance of your word brings light. Bring light to our hearts this morning. Speak to us through this, through the remainder of the day and this week. We, uh, we thank you, Lord, and we love you, Lord, and we want to live our lives for you. We purpose not to be ignorant of Satan's devices for our lives. In Jesus' name. And may we always be about the king's business. In the king's name we pray and all God's people said. Amen, amen. Let's all stand. If you need prayer for anything, our prayer team will be at the front of the, uh, of the sanctuary for a few minutes. If you can hang out in fellowship, do so. If not, drive safely. See you next week.